This is Albert Breer from the MMQB.com, and you're listening to Play Like a Jet. From Joe Namath's Super Bowl Guarantee. I got news for you, buddy. We're going to win the game, I guarantee you. To Ryan Fitzpatrick's contract holdout. Ryan Fitzpatrick, he has not shown up at camp. Where are we with Fitz versus the Jets? And everything in between. They froze. It appeared that Marino was going to try and stop the clock instead. He connected for the fourth time with Mark Ingram. And it is juggled and caught by Jumbo Elliott. This is Play Like a Jet, your weekly look back at some of the best. The New York Jets are the world champions. They have upset the Baltimore Colts and beat them handily here today. And worse. Vince Wilfork is going to throw Brandon Moore back into his quarterback. He's going to fumble the football. Mark Sanchez not expecting it. And it was the backside of Brandon Moore that knocked the ball out. Moments in New York Jets history. So get ready to hop in your DeLorean and take a trip back in time. Are you telling me you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? For an in-depth look at the most memorable games, seasons, players, and events in the history of gangrene, it's time to play like a Jet. Play like a Jet? What does that mean? With your hosts, Scott Mason and Big John Sparapolis. Welcome to Play Like a Jet, your weekly look back at the biggest moments in New York Jets history. My name is Scott Mason, joined by my tag team partner, six foot two, two hundred sixty-five pounds, and the only man that I've ever seen eat five hundred grams of protein in a single sitting, Mister Big John Sparopoulos. What's going on, John? Scotty, uh, it's a pleasure. Uh, not doing too bad, uh, as we learned last week. I do indeed have the NFL Network, so I was able to catch the Jets game. Um, no moral victories, uh, hard-fought game. Our quarterback looked great and um, got a couple more games left in the season. I like to say it's a productive loss, and it's the kind of loss that you want to see more of the next two games. If the Jets can lose and preserve their draft position, but Darnold plays really, really well, I think that's the optimal solution here, right? Yes, yeah, Scotty, I concur. I mean, if they won... One more game, I mean, for the draft slot, I don't think it'll be the end of the world, per se. But kind of what we've talked about the last few weeks since he's been back, watching the uh, growth of Sam Darnold week to week is our biggest hope for the Jets fans right now. It is frustrating, John, that it seems like the offseason is the Super Bowl for the Jets every year. Yeah, Scott, you know, that's been true the last handful of years. I mean, she's uh, offseason of 2015, when you actually were down here in Texas when uh, we uh, re-signed Revis and brought in Buster Screen and spent a decent amount of money in free agency, I think that's the last time we won the uh, Super Bowl. <laughs> the free agency Super Bowl, anyway. It would be nice to go to an actual Super Bowl the way that the Jets did back in the 1968 season, and we are now through that season past the AFL championship in which the Jets defeated the Raiders in a rematch of the Heidi game, and now we are at the Super Bowl. We have reached the part of the season where we are now in 1969 because the Super Bowl has come up and we've had center John Schmidt on to take us through his memories of that season step-by-step the last bunch of weeks. He's done a terrific job. John, I got to tell you, for 50 years ago, he remembers this stuff like it happened yesterday. We could not have asked for a better guest, could we? No, Scotty, I don't think so. We really lucked out with Mr. Schmidt. 100%. I'm sure he will continue to tell us incredible stories 
as we continue our journey through that season and now into the Super Bowl. So, John, what do you say we go and talk to John Schmidt for part nine of this discussion on the 1968 season and begin our chat about Super Bowl three? Ah, geez, Scotty, I'd love to, but uh, I'm on my way to the airport. Oh, that's right. That's right. It is Christmas time, so you are flying back home to New York. When are you getting in? Scotty, I'll, I'll be getting in real soon. I'm going to paint the town green. John, I'm looking forward to seeing you, buddy. I'm looking forward to talking to you and Chris, your brother, as well. Uh, yes, yeah, Scotty. Uh, fun fact, speaking of my brother Chris, um, I was playing him in his fantasy football league in the semifinal, and just on a whim, since I had the NFL Network, I decided to uh, drop all my usual players and pick up nothing but jets from head to toe, and I ended up beating my brother by eight points. So I think I'm going to stay with the same team for the finals. Scotty, it's a huge week here in the land of Big John. Absolutely. Big week. You're flying home. You're seeing if you can win your fantasy championship. It's going to be Christmas. So I'll tell you what, John, go ahead, get on that flight, come home to New York where we all miss you. I'll go talk to John Schmidt, and we'll meet back here after. How's that? As always, Scotty, uh, sounds like a plan. Talk to you soon. We talked about Joe having a mind of his own and that being one of his strengths, but his mind was different from your body, which at this point was not one of your strengths. We forgot to mention with the Raider game that during that game you started to feel a little bit sick, and now, leading into the Super Bowl, you're really sick. In fact, you've got pneumonia. So can you take me through this whole chain of events when you first started to realize you were sick, how it got progressively worse, and then having to prepare for the Super Bowl with pneumonia? Well, I, I I knew I was sick after the championship game, and I I didn't I just thought you know I had a bad I had a flu I had things like that, and then it but then it, it could never get better. It would never get better. It would never get better. And then you know going on, then I finally you know, I went to the doctor. He said, "Well, John, you got you you've got pneumonia, uh, but we think you you're allergic to penicillin. Where they got that from, I don't have any idea. I really don't. But they wouldn't give me penicillin, and I'm the only center they have." And they, they really, uh, you know, and they're not going to, you know, they're not going to let, they didn't want to let anybody on the other team know that I was sick. So when we get down to, uh, when we get down to Miami on Monday before the Super Bowl game, because Eubank <laughs> comes up, he said, now, Spitty, you know, we, we can't let Baltimore know that you're sick. And they said, so you, you're going to have to practice, okay? But nobody's going to hit you, but you have to walk through the plays. So uh, so I did, and I went through three days of that, and finally on the fourth day I said to the coach, I went up to see him in his room, I said, look, coach, if you don't give me penicillin, I'm not playing because I I, I'm just dying, I'm dying. I'm coughing <laughs> oh, up, up blood and yellow and green shit. Oh, my God, it was awful. And my sides hurt, my, my chest hurts, my lungs hurt, everything hurt. My whole body hurt. I couldn't, I had no energy. I couldn't do anything. And... Uh, so they gave me penicillin that Thursday night, and, and uh, I didn't have a bad reaction to it, so they gave me more on Friday and Saturday. But by that time, it was too late. You know, I, it, was, it was, well, you know, it didn't, it may have helped somewhat, but I was so, I was so sick, it was crazy. And like I told you earlier, you know, the Jets sent us a uh, film a scene on television for Christmas the next year of our game seen on television with the commercials and everything in it. And you see me running to the line of scrimmage in the first quarter and second quarter, I'm jogging, running to, I'm jogging to the line of scrimmage. The third quarter, I'm walking to the line of scrimmage. The fourth quarter, 
Randy and Dave Herman are helping me to line this image. <laughs> but the craziest thing, like I told you before, is that we go in after the game, we win the game, all the excitement is done, and I'm just, I'm just glad I'm alive. And I, I really mean, I barely made it into the locker room. I virtually collapsed in front of my locker. And we're kneeling down to say the Owl Father, and I lose my facility. I just start all over the place, okay? And Mayweather is right next to me. He looks at me and says, Smitty, no offense, but I'm out of here. <laughs> I said, don't play me, Joe, because I can't stop. <laughs> oh, he didn't want to be in your puddle, I guess, huh? No, he didn't want to be my, it was my own private puddle, and I was, I, I didn't want him, he, I didn't want him in it either. But you know what? The thing that happened after that prayer, which was one of the classiest things I've ever seen, and, and Joe went up to Matt Snell, and he said, you know, Matt, I'm going to get the trophy. He says, but it's really your trophy. Because Matt had 114 yards rushing, which was a, a Super Bowl record at that time. And he said, this is your trophy, Matt. And, I, and they hugged. You know, they shook hands and they hugged. But, of course, Joe got, Joe got the most valuable player trophy. I want to get back to that a little bit later because I did have a question to ask you about that particular award that day. But before we get to that, let's talk about the fact that you guys were 17-point underdogs in this game. Joe Namath comes out and says, 17 points, gee, I didn't know we were that bad. The buzz afterwards was that you guys felt very disrespected. And not only that, but a lot of you felt like the Colts weren't really that good and you were going to be able to beat them fairly easily. Is that how you remember it? Because we're going to get to the guarantee in a second, but it seems like there was that level of disrespect felt and the fact that other players besides Namath thought that the Colts were going to be not that tough of a challenge. Is that how you remember it? Well, you know, Coach Eubank had had us stop watching film on Thursday before the game because he felt we were getting overconfident, and that's the truth. All right, uh, he had us stop watching film. He he didn't want us to get over. He didn't want us to get overconfident. Speaking of Eubank, he actually was dealing with an injured hip at the time, which he had gotten during the post game celebration. Yeah, after they the... carried him off. Right. When they carried him off. They raised him <laughs> up in the air. One of the guys pulled on his leg and dislocated his hip. Was he on the injury report? <laughs> no, he was not. <laughs> but he really was hurting. Believe me, he was hurting. Oh, my goodness. When even the coach is suffering injuries, you know it's a rough time. But the other coach on the other side was the legendary Don Shula. He was a lot more reserved than anybody else, just saying that the Super Bowl game was going to be a huge challenge. And during the week, the players complained, and I wanted to ask you about this, because the team would not cover the cost of wives the Jets had to pay the airfare and the difference between a single and a double room. If they didn't ride the team charter, they had to pay their own flight as well. Eubank said most teams didn't allow wives at all, and that he called Shula, and Shula said that the wives for the Colts were not going to be there. So do you remember this, and did it seem kind of insulting to you that you're going to have to pay extra if you wanted your wife to come? No, we were just glad that we allowed the wives to come. My wife came, and a lot of the wives came. And that, that was, and, and, and Coach Eubank, you know, in this, even though he didn't, we had to pay a little more, it, it didn't, it was good for the team because it kept the guys together with their wives and not out in the streets. And, uh, and that meant a lot. And, and, uh, you know, and every night we had something. There was, there was a cookout around the pool. There was a night at the races with, you know, so we always were together. And that's what we believed in. He believed in family. And 
keeping the family together. Every night when we were on the road, he would at ten o'clock he would have there would be a a, a big big uh, feast in 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 the hotel we were staying at, and you could bring in all of your friends and all of your family, and they could eat and drink, and I would only have wine and uh, beer, and not not wine but beer and soda, and all the food you could eat so that everybody could come in, their families would come in, they could meet the players on the team. We really believed in family, and he really felt that that was important to have the wives there to keep the family theme together and to really to keep the guys together, you know, so that everybody was together. And, and I think that made a big difference, a big difference. One thing that might have split you guys apart a little bit was there was a rumor that there was a fight between Namath and Lou Michaels. Both of them denied it, though. Namath said it was just a talk and that he drove Michaels back to the hotel afterwards. Do you remember this at all? I don't. I don't remember that. No, I wasn't privy. I wasn't privy to that. I heard about it, but I wasn't privy to it, and I don't know what the real story is. One of these days, perhaps it'll come out. But one story that we do know about is that there was a required photo day that week, but Namath, Boozer, and Snell all overslept and missed it. Could you imagine something like that now? The NFL finds you if you sneeze in the wrong venue. Yeah, no, 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 yeah, no, that wouldn't happen today. But yeah, I, I guess I don't even know that that happened then. I forgot about that. I don't, you know. I, Fifty years, I do. I do. Sure, I remember a lot, but I do forget some too. <laughs> <laughs> Can't remember everything, believe me. But I will say one thing that I'm sure you remember is that the week of the game, the New York Times did a very nice feature on the offensive line of which you were a part. You guys said that you were proud to be Joe Namath's bodyguard, but you realized that one mistake could be deadly. One breakdown, and the quarterback could get hurt, Dave Herman said, and then nobody wants to be the guy that's responsible for Joe getting hurt, which makes sense to me because obviously, as you said, we all know how important Joe was. Also, in this piece, it was Joe Namath who said of you, guys like John Schmidt have put us in position to win the title. On sheer effort, he's become the best center in the league. So, did you wholeheartedly agree with what Herman said as far as nobody wanting to be the guy to let Joe get hurt? And also, what did it mean to you to not only have the New York Times pay homage to you guys, but to have Joe Namath say words like that about you? Well, number one, what Dave said was true. I mean, you know, I had the fastest way to Joe Namath was through me. And they always, the, the opponents always put the biggest guy on the team, on the defensive line, on my nose, okay? From Ernie Ladd on down, all right? Uh, and it was a challenge, you know? And people said, oh, you know, what do you do when you go out? Do you go out the night before? I said, man, I got Joe Namath behind me. I don't go out. I go to dinner with my buddies on the line, and I go to bed. I don't go out (laughs) for that reason. I don't want my man to be the guy that knocks Joe out, and it never happened. My man never knocked Joe out. Joe and I, we had a great saying. We were talking about it last week. Joe, he said, don't worry about it, Smitty. If you miss him, I'll pick him up, you know. (laughs) (laughs) But you don't want Joe picking up a guy. For sure, you know, so it, it was tremendous stress. I just want you to know, it was tremendous stress to, because you know everybody wanted to make their name by knocking Joe Namath out of the game, all right? Mm-hmm. That's the instant success. So that was a lot of stress and a lot of a lot of pressure all the time for all of us on the offensive line. And, and you know, Joe, in, the, in, in, the, in 1968, Joe was sacked 11 times 
in 14 games. And in 1969, he was sacked 12 times in 14 games. All right? Now, we've had the lines at the Jets where, where the quarterback was sacked 11 times in one game. Okay? But we had the best pass-blocking line in football at that time. Bar none. We, and that's the reason why Coach Eubank picked us. It wasn't necessarily our blocking ability for the runs. It was our blocking ability for passing. And we gave Joe his best protection that anybody could give him. And, and statistically, we did that. We did a hell of a job. We had the best bunch of guys you could ever want to work with on the offensive line. And you were sure going to need to prove your worth on this day because you had one tough test going up against Bubba Smith. I know he had an injured ankle coming in, but still it was Bubba Smith and Billy Ray Smith too. So you guys really had your work cut out for you with the Colts pass rush. Yeah, we had we had, we had the Curtis, Mike Curtis in the middle. We had Billy Ray and Freddie Miller on the, uh, on the offensive tackles. And we had Bubba Smith, and he would swing down over me a lot during the game. You know, so I had him on my nose a lot. And he was a hell of a, he never took a play off that guy. He was a great football player. Never, was clean, never dirty, never took a play off. Came every play, every down. So let's talk about the guarantee. Joe kept his famous cool. But at an awards banquet in Miami three nights before the game, he boiled over. I get up to the podium and a guy in the back of the room yells out, Hey, Namath, we're going to kick your, you know what? And that just, you know, it was just, no, wait a minute, I've been hearing that all week long. I got news for you, buddy. We're going to win the game, I guarantee you. That's all there was to it. One guy in the media picked up on that statement. Then everybody said, oh, guaranteeing a win, guaranteeing a win. I didn't react to the word guarantee because it was, he had said virtually the same thing for for a week. I think we got a heck of a shot of winning. We beat anybody in the world, and I think we're going to win next Sunday. I know we're going to win. I have that attitude. I feel that way. And it's not uh overconfidence thing. It's football sense. You have an interesting story about being with Joe when Weeb Eubank came in to talk to Mr. Namath about the guarantee. So for anybody who doesn't know, Joe Namath at a press conference, and he later said it was because he was tired of people kind of taunting the Jets and saying they didn't have a chance to win. So out of frustration, he just said, oh, yeah, we're going to win, I guarantee it, not thinking that it was going to blow up the way that it did, but then obviously it became a big deal, and now it lives on in sports infamy. But you had a story about being with Joe when Weeb came in, and he was not pleased, was he? No, what happened, Joe was at the Miami Dolphin Touchdown Club on Thursday night before the Super Bowl, speaking before a 1,000 people. And he was when it came his time, there were a number of athletes there. And when it came his time to speak, there, he, there was a guy in the background heckling him, and he wouldn't stop heckling Joe. So Joe got pissed off, and he said, hey, listen, buddy, we have a great team. I want to tell you, and we're going to win that game. As a matter of fact, I guarantee we're going to win that game. And what happened, there was a, there was a, a writer from the Miami Herald in the audience. So the next morning, we get up, and we go down to breakfast, and there's Coach Eubank, and he is pissed off. And he's got a copy of the Miami Herald and the front page in three-inch letters, Nameth Guarantees Win. And he brings that over. Now, you know you don't try to upset 
the other team in any way, matter, or form. They're always the best guys. We don't know how we're going to win. Bada bum, bada bum, bada bum. Namath guarantees win. And when when Coach Eubank is pissed off at Joe, he would call him Joseph. Okay, <laughs> he comes over and Joe. Joe is sitting with his girlfriend, Susie Storm, who's the most beautiful blonde I'd ever seen in my life in those days. And he's at the next table from my wife and I, and, and uh, so she bank comes up with the paper, and he opens up the paper, and he says, Joseph, Joseph, did you say that? Did you say that? And Joe had to focus, because he had a little trouble focusing that morning for reasons unknown. And uh, he looked, and he looked, and he looked, and he looked, and he finally said, well, yeah, Coach. I said that. Oh, Joe, you know what they're going to do with that? They're going to they're gonna put that on the wall in the locker room. They want to collapse. They're going to try to kill us, Joe. They're going to want to kill us for what you did there. And I don't know why you did that, Joe. Why'd you do, why'd you do that? And he kept on saying that. And Joe finally said to him, well, Coach, you've been telling us all week we're going to win. Don't you Don't you think we're going to win, Coach? <laughs> and we said, Joe, yeah, sure. <laughs> I just told him what you've been telling us all week. Don't worry, man. It's no big deal. Well, I'll tell you what. It was a big deal. They, they came out and they wanted to kill us. They really did. I guess it was kind of like a angry parent, right? Because I know when I was a little kid, whenever I was in big trouble, it was when my mom said my full name. So when he calls yeah. him Joseph, you know Weeb isn't playing around, right? He was pissed. He was pissed. Yeah, but uh, you know, and 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 I want to tell you, the first quarter, they they came out. They wanted to kill us. They really did. And uh, as a matter of fact, a number of years later. Uh, doing a live at five with Ernie Anastas, and it was about it was about three Super Bowls later. And uh, Ernie says, and, and it's really live, all right. And so it's Jared tonight. This is the Thursday before the Super Bowl of of that year, whatever. I forget what game it was, but you know what was who was playing it. But it was a Super Bowl game. Anyway, he says, uh, John, before we get started, he says we have a few clips of your Super Bowl, you know. And this is live now. I'm sitting in the studio, and they roll the film, and you see me getting my head absolutely buried in the mud, all right, for about three plays. <laughs> and they cut to me, and they said, John, what? Ernie goes, John, what was happening there? I said, well, you have to think pretty fast, and this is live, okay? So I said, well, you know Emerson Boozer, he liked, he liked to hit and spin, and it had rained the night before, the day before there, and, and, and he didn't know whether to wear the long cleats or the short cleats on his football shoes, so I was able to tell him from the depth of which my face mask was being pushed into the mud he should wear the long cleats. <laughs> and with that, we cut to a commercial. And I punched Ernie in the chest so hard. I said, when this, when this show is over, I'm going to kill you, Ernie. And we just laughed. <laughs> to, this day, to this day, we laugh about that. Poor Ernie Anastas. He was probably about ready to change his pants at that point, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. I guarantee you. I guarantee you. But I'll tell you what. They really they really did come out come, come after us. And then, you know, Matt Snell with his running ability and Joe with a little quick passes. And the second quarter really got the game under control, and we and we scored that touchdown. They hadn't had a touchdown scored on them all year, and on the ground, and uh, we did. And then they were beside themselves; they couldn't believe it. And then we kicked the field goal after that, so we're leading ten nothing at halftime. And they were really they were fighting amongst themselves because see they knew our checkoff system because Coach Eubank coached them prior to coaching the Jets. So they knew what our checkoff system was. So what in the second half, Joe did a check with me. We we wouldn't call a play. And he'd come into the huddle and we'd just talk. And then we'd go to the line of scrimmage and he'd call a play. And he'd go green. Say the colors were green or red, white, and blue. We'll go with red, white, and blue. Red, P36T. Red, P36T, which meant a fullback trap 
off the right side, okay? And then they would shift, thinking, you know, P36 red, P36T, we're going to go to the right. And then Joe would go blue. So that was also our color. P37T, which was the same plate to the left side. So they would overload to the right, and we would run to the left. They would overload to the left, we would run to the right. We drove him crazy. <laughs> Joe didn't throw a pass in the fourth quarter. Right. He did not throw a pass in the fourth quarter. So we uh, we controlled the game. I mean, it got tight in the end when they brought Johnny United in, and then he <laughs> he brought him down the field and scored a touchdown. And uh, but then our defense took control of the game, and we ran the clock out, and we were Super Bowl victors, and that's we made history that day. And that's what I was going to ask about because after a scoreless first, you guys took over in the second on a Randy Beverly interception at your own six that Beverly ends up running back to the 20. The Jets go 80 yards on 12 plays and a four-yard touchdown that, as you mentioned, Matt Snell put the Jets up 7 nothing. Jets didn't score another touchdown, but they also never trailed. In the second half, Jim Turner had three straight field goals, 32-30 and nine yards out, making it 16 nothing earlier in the fourth. After going 6-for-17 for 71 yards and three INT, Shula went to the great Johnny Unitas, as you mentioned, early in the fourth to try and make some magic one last time. He did lead them on a touchdown drive. It ended up being a one-yard run by Jerry Hill. At that point, were you a little bit nervous because everybody knows how great Johnny U was? Were you afraid that maybe he was going to come in, capture that magic one last time, and be able to steal this one away from you? Well, yeah, if you, I don't know if you remember, but we also, after they scored the touchdown, they, they kicked an onside kick and they got the ball. Right. And then, uh, but our defense held. Right. And that was it. We ran the clock out. That's yep. all that had to happen. Yep, you ran right. the clock out on a big fourth down stop with just over two minutes to go and end up getting what would be the biggest upset in sports at that particular point in time. Now it was the big one, the Super Bowl, and the hard-nosed, hard-fighting Colts. And as far as the experts were concerned, it wasn't a question of who would win, but how quickly the Colts would stampede the Jets. How badly Baltimore's aggressive defense would maul Joe Namath, especially since he'd been brazen enough to guarantee a Jets victory. And how badly Morrill, Mackie, Maddie, and company would chew up yardage and the Jets' defense. That's how the experts wrote the script. Unfortunately for the experts, the Jets never got around to reading it. As was true all year, they were too busy playing football and playing it mighty well. More than 75,000 were on hand to see the Jets take the opening kickoff at the Orange Bowl in Miami. From their own 23, they moved the ball 20 yards in six plays before being forced to punt. The minute the Colts got the ball, the experts were smiling and nodding their heads. Morrill passed to Mackey, who ran like a wounded rhinoceros for a gain of 19. Tom Maddy then bolted around right in for another 10. And Jerry Hill went to the left side for seven. But the Jets dug in. A Baltimore field goal attempt misfired, and the Jets had held. But the tables really started to turn early in the second quarter, when after picking off a Jet fumble on the Jet 12 and moving it to the 6, it was no score second quarter. Six yards to go for a touchdown, four yards to go for a first down. The Colts with a slot left. Maddie, the lone running back. Back to pass, Morrill. Morrill looks into the end zone, throws to Mitchell, and it is intercepted in the end zone. Off Mitchell's hands by Randy Beverly. Tom Mitchell got hit right in a bread basket on a pass from Morrill. He was wide open. The ball bounced up into the air, and Randy Beverly made a diving interception. And now the Jets were on the move. They took it to the Baltimore 48, where, listen, 
Yards, it is third down and four. Namath back to pass again in the pocket, throwing, and it's caught on the 34-yard line by George Sauer, leaping catch on the Baltimore 34. He is brought down immediately by Lenny Lyles. And it's another first down for the New York Jets, who are now on the Baltimore 34-yard line after taking over on their own 20. Namath backpedaling, looks, throws to the sideline, caught by Sauer at the 30, down to the 25, and knocked out of bounds on the 23-yard line. Namath back to pass, swings one out to Snell at the 20, Snell at the 15, Snell at the 10, Snell at the 9, fumble, and the Jets have the football in the 9, recovered by Snell. First and goal to go on the 9-yard line for the York. Namath calls a play, Namath to Snell, Snell at the 5, Snell at the 4. Matt Snell behind the blocking of Dave Herman. Down to the four-yard line, and Rick Volk from the secondary to make the tackle. It is second down and goal to go New York. Namath on a handoff to Matt Snell. Snell at the five. Snell at the three. Snell, touchdown! Matt Snell in the end zone on a wide sweep to the left. He shook Rick Volk in the five-yard line and banged into the end zone where Lenny Lyles hit him. And this crowd is up and standing and yelling as the Jets have drawn first blood. Bob Talamini made an outstanding block to help Snell get into the end zone. And the Jets lead 6 to nothing. Really to hold, Jim Turner to kick. Here's the snap, the ball is down, the kick on the way, right up the middle. And the Jets now lead by a score of 7 to nothing with 9.03 to play in the first half. And now the experts were a little surprised. But now Baltimore had the ball again. But not for long. Morrow backpedaling, throwing in a hurry, he's got Mackey over, he drops the ball as he caught it, and it's incomplete. He was hit by Johnny Sample, the ball was dropped, it is incomplete. Johnny Sample really popped Mackey as he got his hands on that football, and Mackey was open. The Jets now moved the ball to the Colt 34, where Jim Turner missed a 41-yard field goal attempt. And then it was back to defense, as Morrill again brought the Colts within striking distance. To the Jet 15, a key play coming up. It'll be second and eight. Earl Morrill backpedaling to throw. Morrill looking. Morrill throwing for the end zone. It is intercepted by Johnny Sample on the one-yard line. The Jets intercept Willie Richardson, the intended receiver, and Sample intercepts on the one. They put the ball on the two, and that's where the Jets will take over. Now the Colts go razzle-dazzle with the old flea flicker. Calling the play, Earl Morrill, a handoff to Matty. He has the pass run option. He throws back to Morrill. Morrill throwing long up the middle of the hill. It's intercepted by Hudson on the 13. He's up to the 20, and he falls down, covers the ball. The half ended with the Jets out in front, 7 and nothing. No one believed it. But then the experts figured the second half would be a lot different. But it didn't look too different the way it started. On the first play from scrimmage... Willie Richardson in the slot left with Jimmy Orr wide. The running backs are split. Maddie and Hill, and a handoff goes to Maddie. Maddie comes back up the middle and fumbles the ball, and Baker falls on him on the 32-yard line. Ralph Baker at the 33 recovers the fumble. Berlin Biggs really popped Tom Maddie. Ooh, did he hit him. And the ball was jarred loose, and there was Ralph Baker to fall on him. The Jets start off the third quarter with a break, which they made. The Jets then took it to the Baltimore 25, where it was 4th and 24. So, Furley holding at the 32, slide angle to the left. Jets lead 7-0. Waiting the snap. Here's the snap, the ball is down, the kick is on the way, and it is good. Jim Turner with a 32-yard field goal. And with 10 minutes, 8 seconds left to play in the third quarter, the score, the New York Jets 10, and the Baltimore Colts nothing. The stout Jet defense held again, and the offense took over on its own 32. 
Namath back to pass. Joe looking, throwing, and it's completed on the 47-yard line. The Sowie is brought down immediately. George Sowie at the 47, brought down by Rick Hope, the safety man of Baltimore. Winston Hill doing a great job of pass blocking. He has given Ordell Bracey fits today. Big third down play for New York for possession. Over the ball is John Schmidt. Namath calling signals. Namath goes back to pass. He throws over the middle of Lamont Slant, and he's got the ball on the 40-yard line of Baltimore, and he bounces off a sack by Logan. Goes down to the 39, down to the 38-yard line. Namath back to pass on third down. Throwing up the middle of Snell. A leaping shot from the 25. He is brought down on the 24 by Mike Curtis, the left-side linebacker. And it's another first down for the New York Jets on the Baltimore 24-yard line. On the next play, Perilli came in for Namath, who had injured his thumb. Two plays later, it was... Okay, here we go. The snap, the ball is down, the kick is on the way, and it is good! A 31-yard field goal by Jim Turner. And now, with 3.58 to play in the third quarter, the score, the New York Jets 13, and the Baltimore Colts, nothing. Again, the Jets held, and as the third quarter ended, the man of the hour, Joe Namath, was back in there moving his team. Third down and seven, New York. Quick slam into Sauer at midfield. He drops the ball. It is a dead ball on the 49-yard line. The Jets will retain possession. Namath back to pass. He looks. He throws long for Sauer. Sauer up there. Got it for 15. Walks out of the nine. George Sauer at the nine-yard line. Pulled down by Lenny Lyles. With fourth and goal on the Baltimore two, Jim Turner went for his third three-pointer of the afternoon. Field goal unit in for New York. Really calling signals. Waiting for the snap. Here it is. The ball is down. The kick is up. And it goes right straight through the upright. Three more points for Jim Turner. And so, with 13 minutes and 26 seconds left to play in this ball game, the Jets now lead the Baltimore Colts by a score of 16 to nothing. Then the Colts brought forth the great Johnny Unitas. Sidelined most of the year with arm trouble. But that arm was still a threat. There was still magic there. And Unitas moved the Colts from the Baltimore 27 to the Jet 25. Another big play. Unitas goes back to pass. He's in the pocket. Unitas throwing for the end zone. It is intercepted in the end zone by Randy Beverly. He downs the ball. Randy Beverly intercepting on Jimmy Orr. But with 6.34 left in the game, some of the magic came back. As Unitas masterminded a brilliant 80-yard march that saw Jerry Hill put Baltimore on the scoreboard from a yard out. And now with 3.41 left and down 16-7. to 7. The Baltimore kickoff was an onside kick, and the Colts recovered the ball. Now Baltimore's on the New York 19, and it's... Unitas back to throw, Unitas looking, Unitas throwing, slanted and incomplete. Intended for Willie Richardson, he was covered by Johnny Sapple, who knocked the ball away. Two and a half minutes to play in this game. The Jets 16 and the Colts 7. Wide to the left is Jimmy Orr, wide to the right, Willie Richardson. Johnny Unitas calling the play. Unitas backpedals to throw. Unitas throws as he has hit. It's incomplete. He threw the ball into the ground as Paul Rochester came in very hard from the left side. And also Jerry Philbin and Johnny U was dumped and dumped hard at the 25. Fourth down and four for Baltimore at the 19 of New York. Unitas back to pass. The rush is on. Johnny U throws. It is tipped and knocked away by Larry Grantham. Intended for Jimmy Orr. And the Jets take over. Two minutes and 21 seconds left to play in this ball game as Larry Grantham takes off the helmet, throws it high into the air. Namath then put on a beautiful two-minute, 13-second display of ball control before the Colts took over on their own 34. And with pandemonium breaking loose, it was... Unitas back to pass, two seconds, one second. Unitas throwing to Richardson, he has the ball in the 49, brought down by Sample. The clock has run out, 
and the ball game is over. There is the gun, and the Jets are champions in the football world. There's part nine of our discussion on the 1968 season with center John Schmidt. Part one of our discussion on that Super Bowl in 1969 that was the result of what the Jets did in the 68 season. Unfortunately, John was not able to join me for the interview again this week, but it was for a good reason. It's because he was flying home to be here in New York where we all miss him. John, are you back? Has your flight landed? I'm going to try and patch you back in here. Are you there? Yes, Scotty, I'm here. I landed um, a a few minutes ago. And, Scotty, uh, apparently I'm a bigger star than I ever thought. What do you mean? Well, Scotty, as I was eating my uh, third steak on the uh, in-flight meal, a uh, passenger behind me tapped me on the shoulder and said, "Uh, sorry to bother you, but... um, I see you're wearing a play like a jet shirt and you've just eaten three steaks on a meal. Are you Big John from the Play Like a Jet podcast? Wow, getting recognized on flights. What did you tell her? Did you admit who you were? Uh, well, I told her this. Scotty, I'd love to, and I winked. <laughs> Any autograph requests? Yeah, I just signed Big John because, look, let's be honest, I... Uh, my last name is so long, my hand probably would have cramped up. It's true. You would have gotten carpal tunnel, and then you would have been no good as the quarterback of your rec league, right? Uh, big rec league final this week back in New York as well. Big, big week for Big John. This is how you know it's big time. They flew Big John back in to get that big rec league victory. Well, Scotty, uh, they know uh, that uh, living down here in Big 12 country that I can spread it out, and do the air raid offense all day long. Cliff Kingsbury taught you a thing or two, huh? He he sure did, Scotty. He sure did. Hopefully, maybe my other friend, Lincoln Riley, uh, will uh, listen to me and perhaps be the next head coach of the Jets. Hmm, Sounds like a future assignment. We may have to send you out to try and persuade Coach Riley coming up. But, John, before we talk about the other great shows on our network here at Turn on the Jets Digital... It is going to be Christmas, so I just wanted to wish you, your dad, your mom, your brother Chris, and everybody else in your household a Merry Christmas. We've been friends for 20 years. We've done this show together for a year and a half. It's been so much fun. And if I could get you one Christmas gift, well, you know what? I'm not even going to say it because I just might have something with me when I see you while you're home here in New York. So looking forward to seeing you, buddy, and Merry Christmas. Scotty, as your close personal friend Bart Scott says, can't wait. (laughs) Looking forward to seeing you guys. And if there's two things I know about your dad, it's that he's going to yell at me and call me a son of a bitch Jets fan, and then he's going to shove buffalo wings and pizza down my throat. So it's a good and a bad situation. Although, honestly, at this point, John, maybe it's just one of those weird things where I've gotten used to it, but I don't really mind being called a son of a bitch Jets fan anymore. I almost feel like it's a term of endearment coming from him. Yeah, Scotty, that's how he says, I love you. (laughs) It's true. The original Big John has an interesting way of communicating, but that's why we all love the big guy. Looking forward to seeing him, too, sometime around Christmas. So, John, why don't we talk about, in the spirit of Christmas, all the great shows that we are going to have on our network here at Turn On The Jets Digital, including this one. We're not going to miss a beat. We'll have brand new shows throughout the holiday season. 
We're going to be doing shows all throughout Christmas Eve and Christmas Day too. If you're a Jets fan, this is awesome. If you're not a Jets fan, it should still be awesome anyway. Our coverage can't stop and it won't stop. Yep, that's right. This coverage will continue, including next week, when we get into part number 10 of our discussion on the 1968 season and part two of our discussion on the 1969 Super Bowl. I'm really looking forward to that, aren't you, Bart Scott? Can't wait! Bart, really appreciate your support. You've been our biggest fan since day one. Merry Christmas, my friend, and continue to kick butt with your football coverage well into the new year as well. Quick shout out to our producer, Alan Schechter, who makes so many things possible in this show that we wouldn't be able to do without him. Also does a great job of covering all things New York sports over at EmpireWritesBack.com. So go visit Alan's site and get informed on the latest things going on with all things New York sports, including our Jets, at EmpireWritesBack.com. That's going to do it for us this week. My name is Scott Mason. My tag team partner is Big John Spiropoulos. Welcome home, John. We missed you. But you know even in New York, that there's only one way that we can end this show. That's right, Scotty. A pleasure as always. Merry Christmas to you and yours. Break, break it down. One, two, three. And the home of the Jets.